Well, let me introduce you to my wife, Ann Hinman. Uh, you know, we've got a big anniversary coming up this August. We will we'll have been happily married for 30 years. Uh, actually, actually, it's 25. What? Actually, it's 25 years, George. Wait, I thought it's been 30. Well, you call it happily married, 25. <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah, I remember those first five years. No, I think that you spread it out. <laughs> well, I guess the important thing is the next 25 minutes. <laughs> we can agree on that. You know, last time Ann helped me with a message, I got so many positive comments, I thought I'd better get her up here again soon. Yeah, it reminds me of A Star is Born. Oh. <laughs> Are you going to sing something like Lady Gaga? <laughs> Maybe. When you start looking like Bradley Cooper. I guess the important thing is the next 24 minutes. <laughs> yeah, so let's get going. Today we begin an Advent series on the mothers of Jesus. When St. Matthew tells the birth uh, of story of our Savior, he begins with a genealogy. He traces the generations from Abraham to Jesus. And what's remarkable is he includes five women in the list. Wish, could somebody tell me how you can have a genealogy without women? <laughs> yeah, good point. Uh, but as you know, at the time, it's extremely rare that women would be listed in a genealogy, and St. Matthew gives us five. So he's subverting the genre. And Matthew was one of the first to follow Jesus, and right at the beginning of his gospel, we see that Jesus has changed the way he sees women. And ultimately, he's going to change the way we see women. The way we see ourselves. Right. These, uh, those who were invisible, like in the genealogy, now become visible. Those who were supposed to be passive now become active. Those who were followers are becoming leaders because of Jesus. Exactly. And Matthew seems to be saying, you're not going to understand the birth of Jesus without understanding the story of these five women. Uh, you can't know Jesus fully without knowing his mothers, all of them. And today we begin with the first, Tamar. Matthew writes in Matthew 2, I mean Matthew 1, 2 through 3, Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Judah, and Judah the father of, and, and no, sorry, I got that wrong. Isaac's the father of Jacob, this is very confusing, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah's the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. There she is, yeah. We find the story of Tamar in Genesis 38, so let's pull out our Bibles and turn there. It's okay. on page 31 of the Pew Bible. And before we do that, let me just set up the um, story. Okay. Tamar's a widow, and she's facing injustice. She's a Canaanite, not a Hebrew, but she's got involved with this family, with the Hebrews, because Judah, one of Jacob's 12 sons, left his brothers and his father and married a Canaanite woman, and they had three sons. The first son is Ur, and Tamar marries Ur. This didn't work out so well. Ur was a bad guy. It's not clear which was worse, being married to Ur or being widowed as he, when he died young. Then she marries his brother Onan. Um, that's the way it worked back in those days. It's called Leverite marriage. It was a way to hold families together. 
to preserve family ties and to protect women from destitution in a patriarchal society. But things didn't work out with Onan either. He did not give, um, didn't want to give Tamar a child because he was greedy. He didn't want to share his inheritance with Jacob, with his brother's widow. God judged him and he also died young. And there was one more son, Shelah, uh, one more chance to give Tamar a social and economic security, but Judah said no. He was afraid that Tamar was the problem and didn't want to lose his last and only son, so he lies. He says he's too young to be married. He sends Tamar back to her father's house with nothing, no help, no rights, no future. She'll soon be destitute. Yeah, that's right. At, at that time, a woman without a husband or a child was a person without any support. In chapter 30 of Genesis, uh, Jacob's wife, Rachel, says, give me children or I shall die. So this is injustice. It's like a death sentence that Judah has given Tamar. She's helpless. Well, she's not, um, she's without help, yes. But as we'll see, she is not helpless. Okay, interesting. Well, let's, uh, let's read the heart of the story, Genesis 38. And I'll, I'll read for us, but follow along on page 31 of the Pew Bible. I'll be reading Genesis 38, uh, verse 11 through 26. And when I'm done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're hearing God's holy word. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up, for he feared that Shelah too would die like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah's time of mourning was over, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friends Hira and of Hira the Adulamite, when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to the Timnah to shear his sheep, she put off her widow's garments, put on a veil, wrapped herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. She saw that Shelah was grown up, yet she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought her to be a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He went over to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a kid from the flock. And she said, only if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and the staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. And then she got up and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the kid by his friend the Adulamite to recover the pledge from the woman, he could not find her. He asked the townspeople, where is the temple prostitute who was at Anaim by the wayside? But they said, no prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I've not found her. Moreover, the townspeople said, no prostitute has been here. Judah replied, 
Let her keep the things as her own. Otherwise, we will be laughed at. You see, I sent this kid and you could not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the whore. Moreover, she is pregnant as a result of whoredom. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, it was the owner of these who made me pregnant. And she said, take note, please, whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah acknowledged them and said, she is more in the right than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not lie with her again. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just heard uh, never will. Well, that's awkward. <laughs> yeah, nothing says Merry Christmas like the good old Canaanite ways. Yeah. So, uh, Anne, what are we learning here? Well, that there's a lot of brokenness in our lives. You probably meant to say their lives, Tamar and Judah. No, in our lives. When I was a student, I remember my mother and I went to the movies. We saw ordinary people. It was about a family of four that lost their son, one of their sons. And they were, um, it was a mother who was bitter and controlling, a son who was just crippled by guilt, and a father who was caught between. It was a dysfunctional family, but it was an ordinary family. And when it was over, my mom and I were stunned we looked at each other and said, this is our family. My father had died, my brother was making bad decisions, and I was reeling from the death of uh, my best friend. It was a lot of brokenness, and we did not know what to do with it. We sat there until the next, till the lights went down again and the, and the film started and watched the movie, went through it a whole nother time. <laughs> Because you recognize yourselves in the story. Oh, exactly. And I see our family in this story of Tamar and Judah. It's not the exact details, but it's the same themes. Hurt and loss, abuse, broken promises, deception, hiding, denial, selfishness. The story of Tamar reads like an HBO miniseries. Why do you think we find ourselves so fascinated with these stories, whether it's ordinary people or this is us. I think it's that we recognize ourselves mm. in the story. Mm -hmm. Maybe it makes it a little easier to hear the brokenness of our own lives when we see it in others. Mm. It's an interesting point. So often people are surprised to see stories like this in the Bible, like everything should be sterile and inspiring or black and white, all good or all bad, with perfect role models for us to emulate. Because we think of the Bible as a manual for life or an instruction book to tell us what to do to get what we want. I think it's a reflection of our basic moralism. The idea that if we work at it, we can be our own saviors, that we can fix the brokenness ourselves. Yeah, but we can't. And if you want some moralism today, kids, don't do what Tamar did. Yeah, kids, don't do what Judah did. Okay, so that's the moralism part of, the, of this message. But if that's not what the story's about, then what do we do with it? 
Maybe we sit a while with the questions it raises, the uncomfortable questions. Yeah, like, what does a woman do when a man has taken advantage of her? Yeah. Well, what does a man do when he realizes he's made some really bad decisions? Or why is it so dangerous for a woman to tell her story? Why do families and societies protect those who hurt others? These are big questions, but there's a bigger one. And it gets at, and it gets at the resolution of the story. What's that? Where do we find God's grace? Mm. Yeah, grace is the only antidote to the futility of our moralism. Grace is the only answer to the brokenness in our families. And clearly there's something bigger going on here, something breaking into the brokenness, something transforming the brokenness. Yeah, there's a, there's a blessing in the brokenness. What do you mean? Well, there's no way to understand this story without putting it in the context of the wider story of Genesis. Genesis is a story of blessing, uh, God's blessing. Uh, God blesses at creation. God blesses the first family. There's a blessing after the fall, a blessing in the form of a coming child who would bruise, uh, be bruised, but who would crush the brokenness. You're talking about Eve and the serpent and the seed of the woman? Yes. And there's lots of brokenness along the way. I mean, the families in Genesis are very, to use your term, ordinary. Uh, but the blessing passes from one generation to the next through all these long genealogies. And just when you think it's been lost, there it is again with Abraham. God blessed Abraham with a family that would bless all the nations of the earth. Including Tamar. Yes. Genesis is the book where God declares Abraham righteous by grace, through faith. And did you know that there are only two other people declared righteous in Genesis, Noah and Tamar? Judah says it in verse 26, she is righteous. Because she believes the blessing, even in all the brokenness of her family situation. Apparently so. But how could she have known about the blessing because she's a Canaanite? Yes but she was married to the great-great-grandson of Abraham. Two of them, Er and then Onan, they themselves were not men of faith, but I'm sure she heard the family stories. If nothing else, remember the men of Abraham were marked with the promise through circumcision. She had plenty of opportunities to say, hey, what's that? <laughs> George, remember, it's a family service. <laughs> okay. Just saying she knew the promise. Even if no one around her believed it, she did. So there's a blessing in the brokenness. But where do we find God's grace? It's not always easy to see. Sometimes you can't see it, but it's always there. It is the bigger story. Yeah. Yeah, it makes me think of our family. And uh, a few years ago, we were at Children's Hospital. And it felt like we were losing our family. Uh, not just because, not just a child, but the whole family as we had known it. We sat there in the waiting room, helpless. We never saw it coming. We saw the pain. We felt the pain. There were signs of hurt for years. But we kept thinking, what's wrong with this kid? Yeah, it was like Judah in the beginning. It was something else, someone else. Must be Ur, must be Onan, must be Tamar. Yeah, and we argued over it. 
with our child. Why won't you do this? Why won't you do that? Then we argued with each other. We need better discipline. No, we need better care. And then we argued about each other. If you would stop doing this, well, I would if you would do more of that. Yeah, and that's moralism. Yeah, I guess so. And we needed to ask a better question, right? Where do we find God's grace? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we could absolutely thou shout ourselves um, to death, and it would do absolutely nothing and change nothing. It's the gospel that transforms, and the gospel that changes the dynamics in family. Look at Tamar. She claims the blessing, and it's the blessing that gives her the courage to resist the brokenness. Mm. Who could have done what she did? I couldn't. Not me. It, um, I would have run from that family. <laughs> um, disconnect physically or emotionally. But she doesn't. She endures the evil. She suffers grief. She's a victim of injustice. And she's in a world where women are nothing, no rights, but she never gives up. She doesn't run from the family. She fights for it. The moment in verse 14 when she takes off her widow's garments and wraps herself in a veil is the moment that she claims her autonomy. At that moment, she's no longer defined by the patriarchy. At that moment, she is no longer a victim. Hmm. It's like the moment that Gal Gadot uh, dons a suit and becomes Wonder Woman. She steps into the ordinary with extraordinary uh, superpower and she takes full possession of her superpowers. Tamar dons a veil, and look out, she's got what nobody else has in the story. She's potent, she takes full possession of her rights, her sexuality, and the blessing. It's a little sketchy still, it's bro it, there's brokenness there, but now she's dangerous in a good way. She's poised to do what no man could do or would do. She's an agent of the blessing. She's not helpless. The grace of God is her helper. Wow. You're right, Anne. She's not just fighting for the family. She's fighting for the blessing. Without a child in this generation, the promise to Abraham dies with Judah. Exactly. The blessing gives her the courage to resist the brokenness. But you know what? Grace is at work in Judah as well. Because of, of Tamar, the blessing gives him the courage to admit the brokenness and his role in the brokenness. Judah's given up on, on this family. It's like the whole thing with Joseph and his brothers, which is in the prior chapter 37, just hardened his heart. And he quits. He goes AWOL. He leaves the family, leaves their home, and takes up with the pagans. But Tamar... By the time she does what she does, in verse, and in that moment, verse 25, when they lay out for him his signet, his cord, and his staff, he wakes up. He had traded them away for a moment of lust. The guilt is obvious. The shame must have been overwhelming. But the grace, take note, she says. Take note. Whose are these? He does take note. They're mine, the signet, the cord, and staff. They're not just symbols of tribal power. They're also, to him, signs 
of the blessing of God's promise to Abraham that's been conveyed to him. God's promise to him. Take note. They're mine. And this is this moment where the grace is breaking into his heart and breaking his heart wide open and he admits the wrong that he has done. Wow. That's really what we need in our family, too. Yeah, the courage to admit the brokenness and also to resist it. Mm-hmm. We need Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. Jesus is the seed of the woman. Mm-hmm. The seed of Abraham. It was Jesus who met us at Children's Hospital. You know, ironically, it was Holy Sunday, uh, Holy Saturday. That's the day between Good Friday, uh, the crucifixion of Jesus, and Easter Sunday. We celebrate the resurrection. It was a long day. It was hard to see what was holy about that Saturday. I felt very much bur- buried in a tomb, but Jesus was with us. Mm-hmm. And Jesus has been with us. And we've done the hard work of being a better family. And Jesus is giving us what we need to engage the brokenness with the blessing. He keeps doing for me what he did for Judah. The gospel helps me see where I'm wrong. Uh, To believe the gospel is to see God's judgment on what I've done wrong. Uh, It gives me humility. It helps me admit what I've contributed to the problem. Yeah, and one of the things we've learned from family therapy is that the problem wasn't just our child, that we were all contributing in one way or another. It hurts. It's hard. It's hard to shine a light on patterns that we've established over the years with each other and with our children. Jesus keeps doing for me what he did for Tamar. The gospel tells us that we're forgiven and empowered for a new life that reminds me of Galatians 2.20 that says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. You know, and I think I'm beginning to understand why the story of Tamar is such an important part of the story of Jesus. She risked her life to make things right. She suffered shame to win vindication. She fought for the broken. She fought fought to turn the broken into a family. You know, we're a great family here at UPC. I love this family. Uh, But we're not perfect, are we? No. I'm I'm, I'm listening for an amen. (laughs) We thank you. We have a lot of brokenness in in our families of origin, individually, in our marriages, in our aging parents, and in so many ways we can't list this morning. It's easy to think that our situation is so broken that it's beyond grace. Mm. But Tamar begs to differ. Tamar argues there's a blessing in the brokenness. And my prayer is that the grace of God in Jesus would continue to bring healing to our families and to this family as we engage the brokenness with his blessing. Mm -hmm. George, I'm so glad that Christmas begins with this crazy story of Tamar. It means that God knows all about the chaos of our lives. He sees our families, my sin, our, our failure in parenting, our failure in marriage, doesn't freak him out. 
He doesn't run from it. He um, is not repelled by it. If anything, the incarnation means that God himself has wrapped himself in our humanity and like a veil and entered right into it. That's what we mean when we say there's a blessing in the, in the brokenness. You know what the rabbis say? They ask, what made Judah the father of the royal line? Uh, Jacob had 12 sons. Judah wasn't the first and he wasn't the best, but he was the first person in the whole Bible to admit his failure, to say, I am wrong. And that's his qualification for leadership. And the next time in Genesis, we meet Judah. He is back with his brothers, offering his life and sacrifice to restore the family because of his daughter-in-law, because of Tamar. The matriarch. The mother of Jesus. Let's pray. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in your mercy, hear our prayers. For we come before you not as those who have it all figured out or who even aspire to do so. We come in humility and confession of sin, but we come in wonder, for you have loved even us. And you have entered into the brokenness of our lives with the redemptive and transforming power and grace of Jesus Christ. We give you permission to unleash that grace in our midst. We pray, oh Jesus, that you would make us a community who, whom you are healing mm -hmm. and who become agents of healing in the world. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Amen.